So we're talking about love today, about Jesus' command that we love one another. And I want to start us out by thinking about a parent's love for a newborn child. So this church has plenty of children, praise the Lord. Uh, so most of you are going to know what I'm talking about. Um, and if you haven't had children of your own, maybe you have nieces and nephews and you'll get this too. Um, so the pattern is that a child comes along... Um, and they basically ruin your life. <laughs> and they make it wonderful at the same time. <laughs> so uh, I remember when I was a teenager asking a new parent in my church what it was like to have a child. Uh, and this new dad, he looked like a wreck. Uh, his hair was a mess, his clothes were all crumpled and mismatched, he had dark circles under his eyes. But his answer to me was, Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful. You just love them so much. Um, and I came away from that conversation thinking that I really didn't understand what he was talking about. How could something that hard be wonderful? Uh, but now that I've had two children of my own, I get it. Yes, it was hard, terribly hard. Uh, bringing up my children through the first five years of their lives is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. But it was also wonderful, meaningful, and probably the best part of it is discovering how much you can love. Um, because a child is born totally helpless. <laughs> I mean, in the beginning, it's just a noisy little lump of flesh that can't do anything for itself. It can't move, it can't find food, it can't talk, and it can't even see properly. Um, so one comedian joked that a baby is nothing but a loud noise at one end and no sense of responsibility at the other. <laughs> and it amazes me that a creature that's going to grow up to be Earth's most widely competent and resourceful starts out from absolutely nothing. Human babies are the least capable of all life. If you look at horses, they're getting up and walking in three hours. Sea turtles hatch and then scurry off to the ocean to find their own food, and probably at least half of all the life forms on Earth have gone through their whole life cycle before the human has even learned to sit up by himself. <laughs> you have to do everything for a newborn baby, and initially they give you nothing back at all, but you love them so much. And they're able to unlock in you this enormous capacity for love that you didn't even know you had. Uh, today is actually English Mother's Day, so I'll be calling my mom later. Uh, so it's a good day for me to be talking about this. Uh, babies unlocking us this huge capacity for love. But they're also able to drive us to the very limits of that love. <laughs> so uh, I know from my own experience and from the stories of several friends that weeks of intense sleep deprivation and service to this noisy, helpless person can drive you to distraction. It can make you angry. It can bring you to the very end of your patience, especially if your child is colicky or unusually fussy or has special challenges. So uh, Marsha Labar, Sarah's mom, is one of the most loving people I know. And she tells the story of cradling one of her colicky children while they screamed for the hundredth night in a row and asking herself, do I throw myself out the window, or do I throw the baby out? <laughs> but I gotta kill somebody. <laughs> and I totally relate to that. We realize through our children that our capacity for love is greater than we imagined, but we also realize through those same children that it's finite. 
I surprised myself by how quickly I ran near the end of my store of natural human love and how little hardship and suffering it took for me to grow angry at my own helpless infant children. Human love is finite. It runs out. But the book of Proverbs tells us that what a man desires is unfailing love. So it points to there being a better kind of love. And that's what John wants to tell us about today. So we're going to pick up our sermon series in 1 John in the second half of chapter 3. Um, you can find it in the few Bibles on page 1022, 1022, 1 John 3, starting at verse 11. So we remember from our gospel reading that on the night before Jesus died, he gave his followers one final instruction. Taylor read it for us. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And John was there, and he heard Jesus speak those words, and John remembered them vividly for the rest of his life. And he clearly had them ringing in his ears as he wrote this part of his letter, because he begins it in verse 11 by reminding the church, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then toward the end of the chapter, in verse 23, he says again, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So this whole section of John's letter is a unit. It's a single meditation on this one big idea that Jesus gave us in the new commandment about loving one another. And from everything John says about this love, it's clearly special. It's a special kind of love. It's not the kind of love we find everywhere in the world between parents and children, or husbands and wives, or between friends. It's like that love, but it's recognizably different. It distinguishes God's people from the people who don't know God. And that's the most beautiful and the most challenging thing about it. So today I want to think about three ways that the kind of love Jesus and John were talking about is different from the natural human love that's hardwired into all of us. John shows that natural human love falls short because it's mixed in with hatred, it's self-preserving, and it's disconnected from God. So that's where we're going today. But the love of Jesus is unfailing because it has none of these problems. So first, natural human love is mixed in with hatred. Uh, we're starting with verses 11 through 15. And that might sound like an alarming thing to say, so let me explain what I mean. It comes from this teaching about Cain. So John says in verse 11 that we should love one another, and then he immediately adds in verse 12, we should not be like Cain. <laughs> uh, and when I first read that, I felt very relieved, because I thought, well, that's not too hard. <laughs> that might be the lowest bar in the Bible. <laughs> Don't be like Cain. Don't go out into a field and beat your brother to death with a rock. That would not be Christian love. Uh, it seems like John's point here is almost comically obvious. Um, and we might wonder why he'd even bother saying it. Uh, but as I thought about it, I came to realize that I'm not as unlike Cain as I might like to think. Because I started wondering, well, what is love? What is it really? Could I define it? Um, and I found that it wasn't all that easy to define. It's a big and complicated concept, 
hard to put into simple words. So I gave myself the challenge of defining love in words of one syllable. Um, and I came up with this. I, I, I sort of like it, not perfect. Uh, love in words of one syllable. I would say that love is when you want to give what you have to help your friend. I quite like it because it combines the desire and the practicality and the generosity of love. Love is when you want to give what you have to help your friend. And I'm sure all of us have known a simple, practical love like that. Uh, but then if we turn that definition around, then the opposite is what we would mean by hatred. So hatred, then, is when you want to take what your friend has to help yourself. Mm -hmm. All such behavior we would cl classify as hatred. And that definition of hatred seems to me to sum up what Cain was really doing. Because he saw that his offering wasn't favored by God, that his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So he envied his brother. His brother had something that he wanted, God's approval. Mm. And Cain devised a solution to his problem. He took his brother's life and removed the competition. So he took something from his friend to help himself, and that's hatred. John calls it hatred in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. But if hatred is when you want to take what your friend has to help yourself, then I know that I'm personally familiar with that too. We can see that envy is a form of hatred. Covetousness is a form of hatred. Revenge is a form of hatred. And unforgiveness is a form of hatred. And I might not be a murderer, but I'm all too familiar with these other things. So yes, we do all know how to love, at least a little bit. We're not strangers to love, but the problem is that we're not strangers to hatred either. And John says that although not all hatred leads to actual murder, all hatred is like murder. He says in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Hatred is the desire to move someone else out the way so that we can prosper. And Jesus said the same kind of thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell fire. So Jesus treats hatred like murder. All hatred, then, is embryonic murder. So now John's command in verse 12 sounds suddenly a lot more serious. We should not be like Cain. Because we have all of us known and participated in the way of Cain, in the way of hatred. And so that's the first problem with our human love, that it's mixed in with hatred. But if we've been reborn as beloved children of God, as John says we have, then we've been reborn into the way of love. And it's no longer appropriate to follow the old way of Cain in any way. So we can't divide the people, into the, or people of the world into friends and enemies. We can't make those divisions and love our friends while we hate our enemies. It's not allowed anymore. Jesus taught us to love our enemies too. And we can't keep pre pretending to love our friends and family while we harbor envy, bitterness, resentment, or unforgiveness toward them. We must go to God and have all of that hatred healed. The way of Jesus is the way of love. When we look at his life, we see only love, pure love. He was undoubtedly the most loving man who ever lived. 
You can't find the tiniest trace of any hatred in his whole life. He accepted everyone who came to him. He told people the truth without flinching. He never took from anyone, never harmed anyone, never took revenge on anyone or scorned anyone, even his worst enemies. So we worship Jesus for his own unpolluted and undiscriminating love. And we completely turn our backs on the way of Cain. So that's the first reason that our natural human love falls short, because it's mixed in with hatred. Now second, our natural human love is also self-preserving. So now we're looking at verses 16 through 19. Human love makes many grand promises. It promises to last forever. It promises to be willing to do anything. It promises to be true till death. But in reality, it always crumbles sooner or later in the face of our stronger desire for self-preservation. Isn't that true? So we might aspire to be like the great heroes of stage and screen who lay down everything for love in some grand self-sacrificial gesture. We might want to think of ourselves that way. But at some point, we'll bump up against this disappointing and depressing reality that our desire for self-preservation is stronger than ours. I started to learn this when I got married, and I found it to be true for sure when I became a parent. Because when it came to health scares and trauma and family crisis, I was neither the husband nor the father that I wanted to be. I discovered that under the fragile surface of my love, was this steel core of selfishness. And I see around me that human love is never what it promises to be. In the moment of passion, it makes its grand announcements, but later on, the moment of truth comes and it does not stand the test. As one housewife lamented, in the beginning, he promises to lay down his life and serve you, but 10 years later, he won't even lay down his newspaper and talk to you. <laughs> In the long run, human love is disappointing. It doesn't outlast our self-interest. So, how wonderful then that Jesus' love was different. Jesus made promises of love like so many others. He said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And then Jesus went and did it. When it came to crunch time, his love was stronger than self-preservation. His was a love as strong as death. And he suffered even the agony of the cross out of the power of that love. And John says in verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Yes, it's there at the cross that we see a kind of love we've never seen on earth before. That's what true love is. That's what it looks like. But then John hits us with one of the most challenging lines in the Bible. He says, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So he's saying that Jesus, his impossible, divine, superhuman love is now the model. That's what all our love should look like going forward. That's what Jesus himself commanded when he said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. A love just like his love means without the pollution of any hatred and without the pollution of self-preservation. So instead of asking what I need, true love asks what you need. And when it learns the answer, it rushes in to help. 
Verse 17 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So love sees and responds properly to need, right? So we remember that when Jesus died for us, it wasn't for no reason. It wasn't just an empty gesture of passion, like, to show you how much I love you, I'm going to eat a bug. When Romeo and Juliet committed suicide over their love for each other, it accomplished nothing, just a pair of dead teenagers. And if someone you really didn't know killed himself out of love for you, that would just be totally weird. But Jesus' death on the cross for us wasn't just an empty gesture of love. It accomplished something. It saved us. He gave his life instead of ours so that we wouldn't have to face the judgment of God on our sin. So his death was the thing we really needed. Actually, it was the only thing that could meet our need. And that's the real reason his death was loving, because of what it accomplished. Now, it's very unlikely that any situation will arise in any of our lifetimes where our bodily death will meet somebody else's need or do them any good at all. Some situations have been contrived in fiction, like where a man pushes a little girl out of the way of an oncoming bus, or when one man substitutes himself for a condemned convict who looks exactly like him. So maybe, just maybe, maybe the price of love could be our own lives. And if it is, then in God's strength, we should be willing and ready to let our love take us as far as it took Jesus, which is all the way to death. But it's hard to imagine that that would ever really be needed. It's much easier to imagine that what will be needed is for us to be generous with the world's goods that we have acquired and with our time and energy and gifts and creativity. So I think that's why John moves from talking about laying down our lives in verse 16 to talking about sharing our resources in verse 17. And this kind of pure love that John is talking about is going to be practical. It's going to be evidenced not by word and talk, but by deed and truth. Because if it's truly non-self-preserving, then it doesn't count costs. Mm -hmm. This love isn't deliberately self-destructive. It doesn't seek out ways to to self-harm. It just doesn't think about self much at all. What it sees is the other person and what he or she needs. And where that kind of love is present, of course, we're going to see it bearing practical fruit. And how do we know when someone is in need? John says it's our gut that's going to tell us. So verse 17, that word for heart is actually the Greek word for spleen. Right? So that could be a Greek uh, biology lesson. It's different, um, it's different from the word in verse 19 where he talks about heart. That's actually heart. But here in verse 17, it's spleen. Um, so John says, don't see your brother in need and close your spleen against him. <laughs> um, the spleen, or your guts in Greek thought, was seen as the center of raw feelings, like compassion. You had the mind, which was the center of logical thought, and then there was also the heart, which was the core, or the center of a person, and that was able to understand both reason and emotion. So John is saying that when you feel in your guts that you ought to do something to help, don't stifle that feeling. Let it move you to action. Because your redeemed gut works on the side of love. Mm-hmm. Alright, so let's finish looking at what this passage says, and then we'll come back and look at some practical implications. The third reason that our natural human love falls short is because it's disconnected from God himself. 
And that's probably a very obvious thing to say, but true love flows from the God of love, and it can't be found anywhere else. We're looking at verses 19 through 24. So here's John's logic in this final section of chapter 3. He assumes in verse 19 that our hearts, that's our actual hearts, the parts of us that weigh both reason and emotion, our hearts will examine themselves and conclude that they are not, in fact, very loving. When it comes to following Jesus' command to love one another as he loved us, we all realise that we've fallen very far short of that standard. And so John realises that it's likely that we're going to feel insecure in the face of this extremely challenging word, and we're going to need some reassurance. So John says in verse 20 that our hearts might even condemn us. But then he says, no, no, don't think about it this way. Don't weigh in your own heart how you think you're doing at love and then judge for yourself whether or not you belong to God. That's the wrong way around. John says God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So instead, look at it this way. Start with God himself. John says, do you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ? Verse 23. And do you know that he abides in you through the spirit he has given us? Verse 24. And so, have you experienced, verse 23, a new kind of love for other Christians, the Christian brothers and sisters, so that they've become something like family to you? And if so, then that's the evidence we're looking for to reassure our hearts. John says that proves that we belong to God. And therefore, we not only know this true and unfailing love, but we have access to the power that puts it to work. We have the Spirit of God abiding in us. So we can love like this now. And John wants to show us how. So even though we know we still fall very far short, this word is not a word of condemnation. It's a word of hope and joy. Because the old way of searching for love in people and being constantly disappointed is over. And the new way of finding the eternal love of God has begun. And we who have found it will now share in the work of bringing it into the world according to the commandment of Jesus to love one another. It's a new kind of love that's reconnected with God and points straight back to heaven. So Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, he says, it will obviously not be like the love they've seen before. And it will point straight back to me. They will know that you are my disciples. So John shows us that natural human love falls short because it's mixed in with hatred, but Jesus' love is pure. It's self-preserving, but Jesus' love was true to death. And it's disconnected from God, but Jesus came from God and was God. So what do we do now? We treat this love as the precious thing it is. It's our new priceless commodity. Compared to which, all other treasures are worthless. Love is more precious than gold, it's more precious than time, it's more precious than life. So trade everything else for love. Mm. Get it, save it, spend it, and share it. Get this love from your Heavenly Father. It's yours. Take it. Spend time with Him. Meet with Him. Let Him love you. 
pray to him, sing to him, and respond to his love. That's how we receive it. He is the source. So drink deeply and fill yourself up. Come to God with an open heart and don't be shy of his condemnation, but be confident in his affection for you. He wants you to come. He wants you to know this love. Then we love one another. Do you pray for the other members of this church? Please do. That's a powerful expression of our love for each other. So maybe choose half a dozen people you know here and commit yourself to praying for them every week. And with Jesus' help, get rid of any traces of the old hatred of Cain you might still have for any members of this congregation. Any bitterness or envy or unforgiveness or rivalry or hurt feelings. Give them up to the Lord and make peace. If there's anyone here you find it hard to love, then how about you make it a special point to pray for them regularly, for their flourishing in the Lord until your love returns. And commit yourself to this community, to spend time with at least one member of this church who's not in your family outside of Sunday morning worship every week. Carve out some time with at least one person every week to share lives, open your hearts to each other and walk closely as companions on this journey. Sunday morning is not enough time to put this kind of love into practice. One great way to get time with your Christian brothers and sisters outside of the Sunday service is through our missional communities. And if you don't have a community, ask us what your options are. If you want to try one today, then the open table is meeting for lunch right after this service. Finally, keep your eyes open to your brothers and your sisters' need, as John commands us. God didn't make us all the same, and we don't all have the same needs. So don't assume that you already know what another person needs before they tell you, or before Jesus tells you. After all, they might not need your gifts as much as they need your time or need your advice as much as they need your ear. Remember Marlo Thomas, who said, there's the kind of help that helping's all about, and there's the kind of help that we can all do without. <laughs> Love doesn't just throw pennies at the problem, and it's not motivated by a sense of guilt or obligation. Love watches until it sees how it can meet the real need. Look at the way Jesus met the need of their dirty feet, by washing them, and then the need of their dirty souls by dying on the cross. A very small gesture and a very large one, both the same love. I think John's bottom line is that we all know how to do this. It's part of our new identity as the children of the God of love. We just need to stop holding ourselves back. Stop stifling the impulse of love that we feel in our guts. Stop allowing a little hatred to mix in with the love. And stop returning to the old way of loving out of our frail human store. That's right. If we can get out of our own way, then we know how to do this. Jesus is our example and our teacher and our strength. So little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Amen.